0: Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and well-being. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Kieran O'Boyle and today we're going to continue our discussion on your toolkit for living well during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic using the principles of uh, lifestyle medicine. So this is part of RCSI's My Health series in which we talk to experts uh, in health and science Uh, to look at evidence and ways that you can improve uh, your own health and well-being. Today I'm joined by Professor Mary Cannon, Professor of Psychiatric Epidemiology and Youth Mental Health here in the Department of Psychiatry at RCSI, and by Louise Tully, who's a registered public health nutritionist with a background in research on infant and young child nutrition and obesity. And Louise is a researcher here at RCSI. And joining us later virtually will be uh, Dr. Pawdrick Dunn, who's an immunologist, a psychotherapist, uh, meditation teacher uh, here at the RCSI Center for Positive Psychology and Health. Welcome to the RCSI My Health series. So this is the second of two in the series where we're looking at the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, and what we can learn from these to help us in dealing with the pandemic and hopefully now exiting from the pandemic. In our last episode, we looked at physical activity, sleep and forming positive relationships. And tonight we're going to look at nutrition, uh, substance use and misuse, and the whole area of stress and stress management. So Louise, nutrition, can you tell us why nutrition is so important uh, for maintaining our health and well-being?
2: Yeah, so um Nutrition, I suppose, isn't just important. It's absolutely essential. Uh, we cannot function or exist or survive without nutrition. So we need macronutrients, that's energy from carbohydrates, protein and fats uh, to survive. And then we need micronutrients, so vitamins and minerals, um, for to maintain the normal function of all the systems in our body. Um, and I suppose in Ireland, the most pressing kind of public health nutrition issues are around the prevention of chronic diseases, or what are sometimes called non communicable diseases. So these are things like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, hypertension or high blood pressure, certain cancers um, and also things like bone health so maybe osteoporosis for example. Uh, Diet alongside all of the other pillars plays an important role in the prevention of things like this. So as well as it's important to remember that there are also genetic factors, there's environmental factors, but diet is one of those potentially modifiable factors that individuals can think about when they're looking at their own lives and where there might be room for improvement um, to, to maybe manage their chances of, prevent, or of onset of some of these diseases. So I suppose another really important and exciting and fascinating area is around um, the gut health. So the the flora in our gut and how it can be used to actually maximize our health. So, um, and you'll hear from Dr. Dunn as well around uh, immune health in, in relation to gut bacteria, Um, It also seems to be linked to mental health and stress potentially. And uh, we can use diet to maximise uh, our gut health. Um, There's also things like digestive issues and digestive conditions. So a lot of people in the population might suffer with things like irritable bowel syndrome, which seems to affect a lot of women. Um, so diet can play a role in all of these aspects of health. Um, so I suppose in the first instance, we needed to survive, but we're lucky to be in a position in a high income country where we can think about longevity and using diet and nutrition to maximize that.
1: That's really interesting. So for us here in Ireland, we, we die from these big diseases, these chronic diseases like heart disease and so on. And diet is incredibly important in, in that. Yeah. And, and exactly. we can control that.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you're talking there about, uh, you mentioned bone health there in passing, Louise, is nutrition more important for some age groups than than for others? Are there differences in how we think about nutrition in different age groups?
2: Absolutely. So nutrition is important for everybody, but there's definitely these kind of windows throughout the lifespan where certain nutrients and certain kind of nutritional concerns are more important some sometimes compared to others. So if you think right at the start of life, that period from kind of conception to two years of age is called the first 1000 days of life. So we know that optimal nutrition in pregnancy and early infancy can actually have a profound effect on your chances later on of developing chronic disease. So it's um, kind of a critical window in itself. Um, Then say early infancy, around six months of age, a a young child's uh, iron stores runs out from utero. So that's when the weaning onto solid foods becomes really important. So that's another critical window. Then you fast forward to teenage years. Um, Teenage girls, for example, are particularly at risk of iron deficiency anemia after they transition through puberty. So that's a critical window in itself. And then you mentioned bone health. Um, So. In your teenage years, you actually, that's another critical window for calcium absorption. So we absorb far more calcium when we're teenagers than we do much later on. So in that period, you're kind of stocking up um, and kind of maintaining your, or obtaining all the calcium that you might use later on. So that's a critical window for um, dairy products and other sources of calcium, but also vitamin D because we know the two go hand in hand. So vitamin D is needed to absorb calcium. Um, and here in Ireland we live too far north to get uh, vitamin D from the sun which is the predominant source of vitamin D so it's important that we might think about whether we need a supplement um, and that's something that people should maybe consider talking to their healthcare provider or a pharmacist about. Uh, then fast forward again you have kind of perimenopause and menopause Um that's another critical window for this bone health kind of uh, issue so Women who are at this age or people going through menopause might want to consider thinking about uh, their calcium intake, their vitamin D, and then also the same age group are at risk of muscle wasting. So that's where you start thinking about protein, particularly plant-based proteins, because these can also be really um, healthy in terms of heart health and stuff. Um, And the same for older adults. So this time around menopause as well, it seems that um, the sharp drop in oestrogen It's linked to bone health, but it also is linked to cardiovascular health. So oestrogen seems to play a role in regulating our cholesterol and our blood pressure. So that might be an age where you think about having your cholesterol checked, maybe revisit your saturated fat intake. Could you maybe reduce red meats in the diet, that kind of thing. So there's a whole load of critical windows throughout life, but those might be some of That's the, fascinating. the times.
1: Uh, and we'll come back around to some of those and, and talk about them in more detail in, in a moment. Uh, so Mary, can I, can I turn to you? Uh, the other area lifestyle medicine that we're looking at today is this whole huge area of substance use and misuse and if we we look back on the last 18 months during the pandemic and so on do you have a sense that substance misuse has increased in the last uh, 18 months as we've been dealing with the pandemic?
0: Yes um, unfortunately Kieran, it it has Um, and a a survey carried out showed that uh, in fact Ireland and the UK were two countries in which alcohol use increased during the the COVID pandemic Um, so it, it more than half of the population say that they've increased their alcohol use during the pandemic. About a third have increased quite substantially and and another third perhaps um, a little bit. But these these are very worrying findings um, because, you know, the Irish alcohol use was high to start with. And what's particularly worrying is people say they're, they're uh, binging, uh, binge drinking as well, which is, a, again, a, a hazardous way to, to drink. So, yeah, I, it, the COVID pandemic has not been good for the, from that point of view, um, as well as everything else, but for the Irish population. So it's something we need to look out for
1: yeah and that's really interesting we we were high anyway and the health consequences that were high we were high
0: on particularly on that binge pattern of drinking where drink, drinking five or six drinks in one one go that's that's very quite particular to the irish population yes. um,
1: yeah yeah, and then would you say, Mary, then that people people who use substances like alcohol, we could include cigarettes like that, that, that use them to excess, does that increase their susceptibility to uh, to COVID nineteen?
0: Yes, yes, it does. Well, uh, cigarettes, of course, will will affect your your lung function, which is is you know. Not helpful if you get a COVID infection, uh, so that's that's particularly worrying. Um, and then um, alcohol, of course, dam- you know, does damage your immune system. So especially chronic and high-level alcohol use. Well, so you, you you don't have the the immune response that you should have to to an infection. So you're you're liable to all kinds of infections if you use alcohol or cigarettes to excess. Um, so particularly during this time of the pandemic, we should be very careful about these substances.
1: That's really interesting. So alcohol decreases our capacity or to bat off viruses and and bugs and so on. So Louise, you know when we're thinking about you know the fact that we we suffer from these diseases, non communicable diseases like heart disease and so on, diet is so important and most people will know what they should be doing in terms of diet and you know what they should be avoiding but there are barriers to actually improving our diets. what, What are they?
2: Yeah so it seems like the the food environment is a big one. That's where you know we might know what we should be eating in theory um, and know what the guidelines are, but actually we're surrounded by these ultra palatable foods that are quick and easy and sometimes very cheap and they're everywhere, especially those of us who sit, who live in towns and cities, it can be quite pervasive. And if it's not that, it's advertising for food, you know, very quick, easy, um, very high energy dense, um, high sugar, high salt, high fat foods that are quite nutrient poor. Um, and it seems like eating outside of the home is associated with less kind of healthful foods or healthful diets. So um, th- this kind of food environment, and then you have the aspect of cost. So uh, for some families or you know individuals, it's it's maybe not a matter of simply preparing food at home. It's whether you have a car, whether you have the capacity and also the resources to make a meal at home. Um, and I think also this issue of stress. So. Um, if you live or work in a very high-stress environment, um, often you might not have the capacity after a very stressful time to think about what groceries you have or what groceries you need to get and getting home and preparing a meal. If you come outside of work and all of the options are there to just grab something cheap and handy and delicious, I think that becomes the, the tempting thing to do. And then on the other hand, you have these um, kind of... Social media, I think, for example, is full of nutrition bombarding you with nutrition information or misinformation often, um, and it can be very actually difficult to navigate what you're supposed to be eating, what products you need to buy, um, all of that sort of thing. Um, so I think there's a lot of barriers and it can be quite tricky for people. It's, it's sometimes one thing on paper and one thing in practice, maybe.
1: That's really interesting and there's just lots of, there's just huge amounts of money being made uh, in, in this. So thanks very much for that. We'll come back around to some of that. Uh, Mary, can I come back to you then? When we're, we're thinking about alcohol use in particular, are there safe levels of alcohol use or what's the guideline? What are the guidelines on that?
0: Yes, there are, there are guidelines for what we call low-risk alcohol use. Now, unfortunately, there's no totally safe level of alcohol use, yeah. but there's low-risk alcohol use, which is um, 17 units a week for men and 11 for women. And a, a unit would be, we'll call a standard unit, a standard uh, drink would be um, a small glass of wine or a glass of, say, beer or cider, um, or one measure of spirits. So, um, so, And the other guideline would be two alcohol-free days a week that's uh, you know be also been recommended. So essentially that boils down to one about one unit a day, or maybe two, uh, if you're having your two alcohol-free days. So th- the other thing you need really need to watch out for are the size of your glasses. So a lot of people think, oh, I'm having one glass of wine, and a lot of glasses you find at home, they're really big. So you could have two units in a glass, and you think you're only drinking one unit. So you need to be very careful, and particularly women, um, uh, the alcohol is more hazardous to women's health than than men earlier. you know they they will develop the liver problems earlier than men with with the, the same level of drinking. Um, so yes there are very there are very good guidelines about this and if you you know th- this is very well documented on the HSE website and you can go and find out exactly what a unit is and and how many units you can have a week.
1: And we'll put up links to those websites. Yes. But can I can I just we we just reinforce that? It's probably not as widely known that the hazards are greater for women than they are for I men for the same amount of, mm-hmm. of alcohol.
0: Yes, it's, it's what happens is that the whole process is accelerated. So um, so women will develop if for the same level of alcohol use, they will develop the liver problems earlier than men. And this has been this is being seen now um, because traditionally women you know, many generations ago didn't drink as much as men and men were But now women and men are drinking, you know, almost uh, equal. level, And we're seeing now this, this, you know, increasing amounts of women presenting with uh, liver, liver problems to our, our hospitals.
1: Louise was talking there about the barriers for us eating well. Are there are there barriers for us cutting down on alcohol? Do you think?
0: Yes, it was very interesting what Louise was saying yeah. about uh, being being surrounded by advertising about food, and, and it's the same thing with alcohol. Yeah. Um, you know, everywhere you go, there's billboards. You know, you look at a, a, a sport a sporting event, there's there's advertising everywhere. Now it's been endemic, um, but now finally, I think that people are that public health. Authorities are beginning to say, you know, we, we really have to cut, cut down on this. We can't have positive messaging about alcohol everywhere we go. So, but people need to be very, very um, aware that, the, you know, that, that there's an industry behind this, um, as with the food, you know, and, and it's not necessarily good for people's health. The, the you know, commercial interests and public health are not necessarily the same thing. They,
1: they don't align and no. these are huge forces no. in, mm. in our society. Uh, so thanks very much for that, Mary, and we'll come back around to, to that more detail. So, Parikh, to, to bring you in here, COVID has been a particularly stressful time uh, for so many people, impacting on aspects of our physical health, our mental health and, and our well-being. And if we look at this separate pillar of, of stress reduction and mental health next, what does stress look like and feel like?
3: Thanks very much, Kieran. Stress is actually a part of being a human and being alive and and we actually need it. And that kind of stress, which is normal positive stress is called stress. So that's EU stress. And where it becomes a problem is when the actual, the load that we're under or the pressure that we're under becomes a little bit too much. And then we move into what's called distress, really. And distress is commonly... Uh, interchangeable with the word stress itself. So I think it's important to say that because um, stress can be harnessed in a, in a positive way. So in, in terms of the symptoms of stress and, and how, how they manifest in us, in our, in our brains, in our minds, in our bodies, um, I think it's probably important to say that we can divide stress into three different components. So I'm sure you've all heard of fight or flight response. So there's actually a third element to the fight or flight response, and that's fight. Uh, flight, and freeze. And they're usually the three different responses to stress that all of us get at some point or another. So if we look at the symptoms of what the fight or flight response looks like, really the body is trying to get you prepared, as I said, to, to either fight this threat or to run away. And what do these symptoms look like then in terms of the stress response? So your body will release energy from your liver, so form glucose, which are very active sugars, So you need energy if you're going to run or fight this threat, and your heart rate will increase, your blood pressure will increase, and your breathing rate increases, because we need to get these sugars into your muscles so that you can run or fight this threat. And We also get sweaty palms, and our appetite completely disappears, our libido libido completely disappears, um, and generally speaking, that can mean a short-term or a long-term. So in other words, you can have that in acute stress, which is very short and snappy, or you could experience those symptoms over a long period of time. Now, the other thing that stress impacts in terms of the fight or flight response is the gut itself. So many of us would have felt butterflies in our tummy, for example, if we were going to give um, a presentation, for example, at work or something like that. But it can also have a longer term impacts on the gut as well. It can give us um, gut spasms and things like that. And if it goes on for long enough, it can actually impact on the gut microbiome, which maybe we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and in terms of the freeze response now, so remember the freeze response um, is about being stuck in a situation that you can either fight or flee from. So you're really stuck into this position. And what freeze looks like is really a disinterest in in social engagement. You probably want to sleep a bit more. You really have no appetite. You've got a lot of lethargy, so you're not interested in anything. Food probably tastes a bit bland to you. and You just want to retire into your bedroom the whole time. And You're kind of stuck in that freeze response. The other thing to notice in the freeze response is that people, their voices become very monotone. Um, Now, again, this is not long term because we can come out of the freeze response, but voice becomes very monotone and facial expression can be kind of deadpan, especially around the eyes. And so these are all the symptoms to look out for in terms of the freeze response. So as I said, it depends on the type of threat, um, whether it's fight or flight or freeze, but broadly speaking, they're the broad symptoms of stress itself.
1: So, so, so that's really interesting. And then to make a link to something that uh, Louise was talking about earlier, Paul, like, is there a link between the level of stress that we're experiencing and and our gut health, and and is there a link then between that in turn then and our immune functioning?
3: Yeah, I think there's a very intimate relationship between the stress response and our gut health, um, and actually, if uh, one of the stress hormones or neurotransmitters that's produced during stress is adrenaline. And we might've have all have heard of that. Now, adrenaline actually, when it comes from a nerve, is called a neurotransmitter. When it's produced by the adrenal gland, it's called a stress hormone. Um, but when adrenaline is produced by nerves that um, really, there's a huge amount of nerves in your gut. In fact, your gut can be regarded as your second brain. There's so many nerves that just mesh it everywhere. It's called the enteric nervous system. And... Um, but really what happens is adrenaline actually can come out from the end of these nerves um, and activate the immune response. So when the immune response gets active, then you can actually get damage from the inside out. So that's um, from the barriers behind the, the, the gut wall, for example, the immune response can emerge into the gut itself and cause a problem. So that's one way that stress can impact the gut. The other thing that stress does is it Impairs our mucosal barriers. Now I'm going to I'll describe that in a more simple way. Our mucosal barriers or mucosal sites can be found in our lungs. So all that means is the first layer of cells that line the, the inner tubings in our lungs and also in our gut. So they're lovely little layers of cells and they all produce mucus. Um, um, and that's why they're called mucosal lining. But what happens in stress is that this mucosal lining becomes permeable. And things that shouldn't be getting inside into the bloodstream can get inside into the bloodstream, but also they can activate immune cells that live underneath these layers. So you can have, you can basically, during stress, you can have the immune system being activated by adrenaline, and that's from the inside out approach, which, which can actually, if it goes on long-term, can damage the mucosal lining, but also then you have coming from the outside in, where stress actually can damage the mucosal surface itself, and you can get things that shouldn't be getting into the bloodstream, and um, getting in like bacteria, for example. And that activates the immune response. And when you activate the immune response in terms of the gut, you can get gut spasms, and um, you can get lots of unpleasant um, sensations in the gut itself. And um, you can get, you know, really piercing pain, for example. And um, so it's very unpleasant. But there's a really strong intimate link between the immune response um, and the stress response itself. And also, um, and I think Louise may have mentioned it already, that there is um, a big part to play for your gut flora, or what's called your microbiome, um, in the gut itself. And all that means is we have got trillions of bacteria that live in our gut. And in fact, we've got more bacterial cells in our gut than we have human cells. So you might argue, actually, that we're more bacteria than human. But these bacteria are crucial for our mental health, and they're crucial for absorbing nutrients, and they're crucial for our gut health itself, they maintain that mucosal barrier. Um, and I think we'll talk about it in, in a moment about how diet actually can impact that. So all of these things fuse together in terms of the stress response um, to activate the immune response um, that can damage the gut itself and create lots of problems.
1: So then, Parikh, for, for people watching, if we start to think about the practical things that we can do you know, to decrease the, the, the stress that we experience, what can we do to manage the, the symptoms of stress then in the short term and then in the longer term?
3: I think what we're talking about is, for me, stress first aid, which is ABC of stress, and then long-term management of stress. And very briefly, um, when we talk about ABCs, we're talking about awareness, we're talking about breathing, and we're talking about compassion for yourself. So awareness, you need to cultivate awareness in the body. So you need to be aware of areas in the body that are very tight and you need to consciously relax them, for example, the shoulders. Um, And you can do something like the body scan meditation that you'll find on the RCSI website, um, and that can be very helpful. You'll also find descriptions of the body scan meditation in the Science of Health and Happiness, for example. And you also need to create awareness in your mind because these things that initiate stress can actually ambush us. And we can have massive blind spots in terms of where these things come from. But if you pay attention to what's going on in your mind, and you can pay attention by engaging things like mindfulness meditation, even prayer, for example, will help you create more of an awareness of what's going on in here. But also, um, you can do something like journaling, for example, or creating a diary that you spend maybe five, 10 minutes a day on. So create awareness. And then the B in the ABCs is breathing. And we need to put a break on the fight or flight response. And a very simple but hugely powerful way to do that is by breathing in a certain way. And it's what I call triangular breathing. And you're talking about inhaling for five seconds, exhaling for five seconds, and holding for five seconds. And we breathe like that for maybe five minutes. And you'd be massively surprised at how quickly that can take all those symptoms of the fight or flight response down. So that's B. And in terms of C then, it's all about being kind to yourself, really. It's compassion. And most of us aren't compassionate towards ourselves. We've got a very strong negative inner critic, and that we usually let run the show. Especially when we feel stressed, it you know it it starts saying things like, "Oh, you know, you'll be found out. You're a bit of a fraud. All that kind of stuff." And we need to manage that inner critic. We need to be kinder to ourselves because humans are great at being kind at ourselves towards ourselves. So, awareness of the brain and the mind and the body, engage that kind of triangular breathing to manage the stress symptoms and be kind and compassionate toward yourself. In terms of long-term, I'll keep it very brief. We're talking about exercise. If you can engage in exercise in a community setting, then that will be best for you. Um, But also creative pursuits. And that creative pursuit can be anything from um, art to sculpture to making a three-legged stool um, to painting a wall outside your house, to cooking. It doesn't matter what it is, but exercise. And when I say exercise, as I said, community-based exercise um, and conscious exercise. So not running on a treadmill, looking at Sky News, but actually paying attention to being in the present moment. And as I said, if you want to get more information on these practices, you can check out our previous My Health um, episodes, which you can also look at our Science of Health and Happiness Uh, course, that's our 10-week course.
1: Thanks for that, Park. So so Mary, if I can turn back to you again, do you have tips or strategies about how we can cut down on alcohol use and and smoking and what supports are available for people who want to reduce their levels of of alcohol and and decrease smoking?
0: Well, um, Kieran, to be honest um, you're better off cutting out smoking altogether. I mean, if if you're a smoker, probably the most powerful thing you can do to increase your health is to stop smoking Um, and there are a lot of supports out there now there's a quit line um, uh, the HSE have a a, a special line you can call and we can give the number at the end of the show Um, there's uh, a lot of strategies now to cut down there are nicotine replacement products Um, okay you will you will suffer withdrawal symptoms for a, a week or two but the the dividends for your health will be overwhelming and some people think they will it will lead to increased anxiety in fact you know it it the, the, it's an ongoing stress using smoking because everybody knows smoking is bad for your health. So the relief when you give it up will be will be immense. Um, with regard to uh, well, just to some strategies in terms of, of giving it up. You have to distract yourself. You know, so so if you if you can stop the the urge to smoke just for by five five minutes, you it it will have passed. So you can you can use the strategies that Porik had been talking about to to to. Try and take deep breaths, to meditate, to to, to go out for a walk, um, you know, chew some gum, drink a glass of water, just, to, just so that craving will, will pass. Um, with, with, in terms of uh, alcohol, um, of course, you could you could cut it out altogether, but uh, to but the the I suppose the what the advice at the moment is to get down to low-risk drinking. Um, and they particularly to reduce binge drinking, because that's what causes the most damage to your liver because your liver can only process one standard unit an hour. So if you're drinking five or six drinks within a few hours, your liver cannot cope with that. Your toxins are building up, so the damage is happening. So in terms of, of uh, start cutting down your drinking, don't reach for a, a glass of wine when you come home or a, a bottle of beer to reduce your stress. If you've had a bad day at work, don't let that be the first thing you reach for. Try and get out, go for a walk, just delay... You know, delay the uh, taking that glass of wine. Keep as late as possible because yes. that means you'll drink less. Because if you start early in the evening, you'll keep going all evening. Yes. Um, and it's, it's uh, the, you know, the the, the the later you can delay it, and then if you're out with the, uh, you know, with other people, again try and and maybe go out a bit later. Don't get into these rounds of drinking because that, you know, there's a pressure, a social pressure to keep drinking. Try and, and alternate alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks if you're out. That's a good strategy. Um, or, you know, reduce to like a low, uh, low strength beer or even non-alcoholic wines. These are all very practical tips you can do to get your alcohol level down. Keep an alcohol diary. If you're worried about your alcohol use, just note what you're taking during the week. And just, just you can see then if you're getting into that higher level risk zone and take strategies to reduce it. It's
1: really interesting because we have such a powerful cultural pressures in terms of this that it's yes. really difficult yeah. for, for people yeah. to cut down and go. And then, Mary, if, if somebody is worried about a, a family member, you know, about their substance use, uh, what can they do to support or, or help somebody in that situation?
0: Well, Karen to be honest, the best thing you can do is look at your own substance use. There's no point lecturing anybody else about smoking or drinking um, if you yourself are doing it. Um, And so if you can give a good example and get your le- drinking level down. Cut that, cut the smoking out. That that would be the most powerful message. Um, that particularly applies to younger people. So I don't think we realise, you know, parents, that younger people are r- role modelling on you. So if you are, the, if the first thing you do when you come home f- from work is reach for a drink, they w- young people will see that as a strategy. That's how you cope with stress. That's how you deal with stress. So you you, you don't want them seeing that. If possible, it's best not to drink in the presence of particularly younger children. Um, with young adults, it's more difficult because I know we all have young adults around the house now. It's not good to have young adults, you know, drinking, smoking, smoking cannabis in the house because this, again, the younger children can see this. There have to be rules around these things, and, and I think the parents will have to set these rules, um, and you know, there's, have a clear, consistent message. If you're very worried about substance use in young people, uh, or, or you know, a, a partner or children. There's a lot of help available from the local regional drug and alcohol task forces. People don't think of these, but they actually have family support workers who can give very practical advice. And each region, has their own drug and alcohol task force, um, and particularly useful, say, for parents worried about about um, young young adults at home, particularly if there's challenging behaviours or aggression, um, which can be quite worrying for parents. Um, so there's there's a lot. Of, the HSE have a wealth of advice about cutting down substance use and uh, s- family support. There's a, a, a website, Ask About Alcohol. And we can put, I can put up some um, information later. Uh, in hospitals, we have alcohol liaison nurses who again have a huge amount of information. So there's uh, lovely leaflets. Pick them up wherever you are. Um, they're incredibly well produced, and uh, you know we should be proud of the HSE. The work it's doing in health promotion in this regard.
1: That's really, really useful. And we should stress, this is your specialist area of research as well, this whole area of use. Well, well,
0: I suppose my area of research, I'm particularly interested, I suppose, in long-term effects of cannabis use in young people, and I think we don't realise how damaging that can be for young people's mental health. But alcohol is also damaging for your mental health. We've talked about the liver today, but alcohol is a depressant. So you're not, you know, you think you're reducing stress by taking alcohol or having a smoke. You're actually increasing your risk of, of stress and anxiety later on.
1: And we will put up those. And the HSE just last week launched their Healthy Ireland, their progress report on Healthy Ireland. So a huge amount of, of useful, very useful information. Thanks very much for that. So Louise, coming back then to to diet, what role can diet have, play in protecting us as we, we're heading now into another winter of this pandemic? So it's a, it's a tough time ahead. We have a tough few months ahead.
2: Yeah, that's it. And I think... Um... You know, I always like to think of it as if you're kind of well-nourished, well-hydrated, and well-rested, um, well-fueled generally, then you're kind of equipping your body as best it can be to kind of fight the kind of germs and potential infections we come up against because we're all out and about socialising far more than we have in nearly two years. Um, so I think there's a lot of things going around, like our body's defences are being maybe tested a bit more than they have been um And so I think the very best advice that I can give in relation to diet is, you know, um, the old reliables. They're kind of boring messages. They're not the very kind of silver bullets that we sometimes hear about. But it's that thing of fruit and vegetables where you can whole grains, nuts, pulses. But a lot of the kind of benefits that you can get from kind of vitamins and minerals, you can obtain that from your diet. So things like vitamin C, you can get that from citrus fruits, you can get vitamin E from nuts. Um, But the fantastic things about these foods is that they also contain fibre. And I think um, we tend to associate fibre with just like our toilet habits, but um, fibre is our best friend because it also contains these things called prebiotics. So we hear about probiotics quite a lot, but prebiotics are fuel for the good guys in your gut, I suppose. So they um, can kind of feed all of those potentially good bacteria. So they're protecting potentially your heart health, your, your mental health, um, preventing obesity, all of those things that we discussed earlier. Um, but also you're, get, you're managing your kind of body's natural defences as well. Thinking about the general diet, dietary advice more generally. So um, you have there's quite a lot of saturated fat in all of our diets. So a good thing we can do is try and replace maybe the oils that we use with cooking. Um, Things like olive oil or nut oils tend to be what we call unsaturated fats. Um, And they're nice ways to replace and they have these kind of anti-inflammatory effects. So a lot of the kind of um, damaging processes in our bodies are caused by inflammation so we can kind of counter that a little bit with anti-inflammatory foods. Uh, So omega-3 fatty acids as well are fantastic so that's your oily fish or your good fats and oils as well. Um, and these are kind of key messages that we do hear a lot, but unfortunately, they're not as jazzy maybe as some of the products and things that we.
1: But it's a nice positive way to put it, Louise. So rather than you know focusing on what we cut out, we sort of add in more healthy things, and by virtue of that, we're cutting out we're cutting out the, the exactly. bad stuff. Exactly. Okay. And now there's a huge amount, as you say, of advice out there. Some of it conflicting. You know, people are being bombarded with all kinds of products and so on. Where, where should we turn for good nutritional advice?
2: Yeah. So. I mean, I think especially with social media, there's it's full of people who are very willing to give out nutrition advice. Uh, some of them are experts, many of them are not. Um, and I think, it, like, the more extreme, the more kind of interesting it is to people. So you're get you're hearing about kind of very extreme diets where people are being advised to cut out whole food groups. And I suppose the thing to emphasise is that um, nobody should be cutting out a whole food group without very careful supervision of maybe a dietitian or their GP and unless they're recommended to do so. So a dietitian is the only healthcare professional who's qualified to manage uh, any kind of nutritional condition or your nutrition intake for any kind of other diagnosed condition that you have. For more kind of health promotion related advice, you could look to a nutritionist. Now, a nutritionist is kind of a vague term. Anybody can call themselves one. So maybe the easiest way to find out their credentials is to look to maybe if somebody has a degree in this area um, before kind of taking their advice. Um, I suppose there's a, there's an awful lot of helpful resources out there. So I have provided some that should be available after also.
1: OK, we'll put those on the website. And the HSE yeah. has some, I think, very good material on absolutely on in terms of its, its Healthy Ireland programme. Thanks for that, Louise. So, Mary, for, for people watching uh, this uh, My Health episode, what, what would be the key take-home messages in terms of substance use and, and misuse?
0: In terms of the two substances we've mainly talked about tonight, um, smoking and alcohol, with smoking, just stop. Okay, there's There's nothing more powerful you can do to improve your health if you're a smoker than stopping smoking. Because if you stop smoking, you'll add 10 to 15 quality years to your life. One in two smokers will die of a smoking-related disease. So with regard to alcohol, bring your alcohol down to a low-risk level of of, uh, drinking. Familiarise yourself with the... with the levels of low-level drinking, which is 17 units for men and 11 for women. And, you know, use all the strategies you can to get your drinking down and keep it down at that level and use all the hey, the promotional material that's available and the health information that's available. What always strikes me is that, you know, when people get a life-changing diagnosis, in you know, later in life, they're suddenly able to stop drinking, they're able to stop smoking, they start exercising, they start eating healthier. And I just think, why couldn't you have done that ten or twenty years earlier? And then you wouldn't have this diagnosis in the first place. So please think of that. If you can do it, then you can do it now. And the earlier you start, the better.
1: And Louise, the same question. The the, the key take home messages for us uh, in relation to nutrition.
2: Yeah, and I think we touched on it slightly already. But I think um, we've all had a really tough couple of years, um, you know. And I don't think anybody should be too hard on themselves about their habits but when it comes to diet a lot of the messages out there there's a whole wellness and diet culture that wants you to restrict limit cut out and I think it's much nicer as you mentioned earlier to flip it around and think about what could I add to my diet and um, it's important for food that we enjoy it we love it we have a nice time around food so it shouldn't be something that brings us anxiety so maybe think about could you add a handful of nuts to your breakfast or replace one of your to your coffees with a glass of water maybe it's an extra portion of fruit or veg Um, and I think we can all then it's those small habits that are sustainable um, and that we can build up over time.
1: Uh, Thanks for that Louise and and Park, if I can turn to you again, what's your, your take home messages for people watching this in relation to stress and stress management? The beauty
3: about the pillars of lifestyle medicine is that a rising tide lifts all boats. So what do I mean by that? What I, what I mean by that is that if you can get a handle, for example, on drinking wine, for example, in the evening that you turns into a habit, okay? If you can get a handle on that, and let's say don't drink during the week at all, for example, what you'll find is that your sleep will improve. Now, if you improve sleep, then what happens is you get um, less of a stress response, believe it or not. So your immune system becomes more balanced. Um, so then you get, you have less impact on the gut, for example. Um, and if you're eating uh, proper food and whole foods, not processed foods, well, then that helps your gut microbiome. And that in turn helps your immune response. And that helps balance the nerves that create the fight or flight response. And if you can um, engage in exercise, that helps manage stress full stop. If you work on your relationships, that will also have a knock on effect on the other things. Um, And finally, stress management, remember the ABCs, awareness, breathing, and compassion for yourself. Um, Everything is integrated. So if you improve one, you improve the others. And for me, that's the that's the beauty about lifestyle medicine. Um, and the very last thing I'll say is give yourself a break. Um, we're not machines. These things are hard. Change is really, really hard. So what I would say is, you know, um, I think it was Samuel Beckett um, who said, you know, fail better. Um, and that's what we need to do. So just vow to repeat the next day. Get up, do your best, but be gentler to yourself. Be kind cultivate more compassion for yourself and remember that if you improve one of the pillars you'll improve the other pillars
1: that concludes our our discussion for today uh, my thanks to our guest speakers dr patrick dunn uh, louise tolly professor mary cannon and the as we've said the resources that have been referred to uh, in today's session will be available uh, on the rcsi website
0: thank you for listening to rcsi my health we hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash lectures.